Well, today, um, as we transition here, um, we have a special treat. We have a guest speaker today speaking with us. His name is Matthew Hoskinson. And so when he comes up here, just a second, I just want you to give him a really, really strong welcome. And he is the director of the City Ministry Program at uh, Redeemer City to City uh, in, in Manhattan. And he'll talk about that in a, just a little bit. Um, but they do incredible training for leaders and even, even church members. Uh, and pastors, I've been trained by them. That's how I met um, Matthew a couple of years ago and uh, doing, a, doing a pastor class. Pastors need lots of training, just so you know. And so I'm so excited, Matthew, to have, have you with us. If you'll come up here, let's welcome Matthew. And uh, Matthew's coming from Manhattan. And so we want to give you an honorary Go Jersey City t-shirt. So as you walk or run around Manhattan, you can uh, talk, show your love for Jersey. I will wear it proud. And somebody from Manhattan just crossed the river to Jersey, so this is a big feat today. Uh, But thank you for joining us today. We appreciate (laughs) you being here. Uh, Yeah, it's just a real delight uh, to be with you all today um, and a real honor. So thanks, Wayne. I, I do make it, you know, to Jersey every so often, but I, I was telling him even, oops, that's not the right code. Okay, that code worked. Um, yeah, I was uh, telling Wayne when I arrived, my problem when I come into Jersey is I never know where I am. It's like, it's, it's kind of like, for me, I feel similar to when I'm in Queens. Like, I know there's different neighborhoods, but I don't know, am I in Corona now? Like, I'm not sure. There was not a line somewhere. So when I drive through, uh, I'm coming through. But once I got here, I was like, hey, there's a Jersey City sign. I'm in the right spot. So uh, anyway, it is, uh, it's great to be here. I'm uh, originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, so it actually kind of killed me to plug in a Chicago Bulls-related passcode here just a moment ago. Um, my wife is from Illinois. We have five kids. We live in Midtown Manhattan. Our oldest is in college. Our our youngest just finished fifth grade this week. Uh, so that's just a little bit about me personally. I, I was a pastor, came to New York to pastor a congregation on the Upper West Side, uh, and then helped plant a church in Queens, and now I work for City to City. Uh, and if you're interested in the program I direct, I've got one quick slide to show you. I promise I won't take a long time on this. But we offer year-long training and a lot of different things from the perspective of the gospel. So we have people like Wayne who are currently in ministry who come into our program to get some fine-tuning or further development in certain areas. We have people who are thinking about becoming ministry leaders or pastors someday or, or leaders in a church. And then we have a lot of people who are part uh, of our program who come to us for something very specific, like they want that training and mission or they want a Christian perspective on leadership. Uh, so if you're interested in any of that, just feel free to talk to me, or you can get my email address or uh, whatever and contact me. But it is uh, really just a delight to be with you today. Uh, I'm going to be speaking today from uh, the first letter written by the Apostle John, First John. Uh, and I'll be reading from chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. The words will be here on the screen. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. I'm going to pause my reading here. As I read these verses, there's a little word that pops up over and over and over again. Be on the lookout for it. Okay? Continuing. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Perhaps, like many of you, I was riveted by the television show that concluded last year, Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul. Um, If you don't know the show, it was the prequel to another very, very famous show of the 2010s, Breaking Bad. It told the story of James McGill, Slippin' Jimmy, Jimmy McGill, who eventually becomes Saul Goodman, the lawyer for the, do we call them protagonists? Antagonists of Breaking Bad. Jesse Pinkman and Walter White. Uh, antagonists. We'll, we'll go with antagonists. Um, but Saul, Saul Goodman, Saul Goodman, um, he was the lawyer for them. And then Better Call Saul traces, how did he become Saul Goodman? Fascinating story. Could hardly be more different in terms of the, the, the speed, the pace of the show, the, the content, what it was dealing with. It, it was sort of, uh, it kind of reminded me of Suits, but like very much like lawyer life down to earth from the lawyers who advertise on television. Although I'm sure they didn't appreciate the portrayal. But boy, is Jimmy McGill ever shady. Every story for six seasons, you see Jimmy turn Saul lie and scam and deceive and cheat his way through life. While the people in his life are always left holding the bag. For six seasons, the audience wonders, will this guy ever come clean? And that's actually the question I want us to explore today. Why is it so hard for us to come clean? To acknowledge when we've done something wrong. You don't have to be a shady lawyer to have a litany of wrongdoing to admit. And yet, it is so hard for us to admit when we're wrong. It's what disrupts marriages. It's what introduces tension in parent-child relationships. Or adult-child-parent relationships. It's what puts tension at work when a coworker just can't seem to say, I did it wrong, I'm sorry. Or when we ourselves are that coworker. 
Why is it so hard for us to come clean, even when we are clearly in the wrong? Well, the passage I just read introduces us to the topic of confession. Now, that word might mean a lot of different things depending on your background. I say the word confession, and you might think of a booth at the back of a church building where you go behind a curtain, and there's somebody you can't see on the other side of a wall. It's like a very tiny sauna without the rocks, right? And you make confession to this person who tells you to do a bunch of stuff. Or you might think of confession as, uh, you know, from a crime show, like Breaking Bad. But this passage really introduces us to the topic of confession as it relates to God. Not coming clean to another person, but just privately before God, like in those moments when we had silence a few minutes ago, Before God, in that moment when it's just you and God coming clean, but why is it so hard even there to admit when we're wrong? That's what this text addresses for us. So let me start by making three observations about this passage. And I'll start with what might be the most obvious one. I mentioned that there is a word that repeated over and over and over through those verses, a very little word, tiny word. What word was it? Two letters. It started most of those verses. Anyone? What? I heard it. If, right? In just these eight verses, that word appears six times. Uh, You can go to the next slide. Uh, It's in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, and then chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Biblical writers did not have word processing software where if they wanted to emphasize something, they could put it in bold or italics or underline. Instead, when they wanted to make a point, they would repeat over and over and over. And as you're listening, it's like, oh, I I understand what they're getting at. Our writer John here is pointing out six if statements, a little bit of grammar on a Sunday morning, six conditional statements. To drive home a point. So that's one observation. We have this word if over and over and over again. The second observation I want to point out is that this is not just a random smattering of if statements. But what John is doing is he's setting these if statements up and oscillating back and forth. You know what oscillating is, right? If you're in an apartment without air conditioning and you have an oscillating fan, you curse it. Because half the time it's not pointing at you and it's pointing at your roommate, right? Okay. John is oscillating between two points, back and forth and back and forth. He's oscillating between a problem on the one hand and a correction on the other. If, and he says it's a problem, verse 6, but if, he corrects it in verse 7. Here's a second problem, verse 8. If this, and then he corrects it in verse 9, but if that. Verse 10, third problem. And then chapter 2, verse 1, a third correction. One last observation here. And this will help us understand why it's so hard for us to admit when we're wrong. The three problems, what you see here on the left side of the screen, those three problems all start with the same words. Not just if, but if we claim. Verse 6, if we claim. Verse 8, if we claim. Verse 10, if we claim. 
all three of the problems that the apostle is pointing out for us go back to what we tell ourselves. They're stories. And now we get into this matter of why it is so hard for us to admit when we're wrong. There's a story that we're telling ourselves that does not allow us to admit when we're wrong to our spouse, to our kids, to our boss, to God. The first story is in verse 6. The story is, if we claim to have fellowship with him. This is the story that says, I'm sure I'm right. I'm sure I'm right. I have fellowship with God. I mean, here I am on a Sunday morning, a beautiful Sunday morning in June, after being out all day serving people on Saturday. I'm the one here in church. I'm the one watching online. Like, I could be watching the pregame show for the NBA Finals. But here I am attending church. I have fellowship with God. I'm sure I'm right. And that's the first reason John gives for why we have a hard time admitting when we're wrong. Because our knee-jerk reaction when someone says, hey, I think you messed up here, is to say, well, wait a second. I'm confident I'm right. The second story we tell ourselves is in verse 8. It's the story that says, I'm sure I'm a good person. John writes, if we claim to be without sin... Literally, this verse reads, if we say, if we claim we have no sin, there's just nothing wrong with anything we've done. You ever meet anyone like that? You ever meet that person in the mirror sometimes? The emphasis in verse 8 is that I have no sin to confess. I'm a good person. You can't accuse me of doing wrong Because I'm a good person. I'm not the kind of person who would say that or who would do that. This is the story we tell ourselves. And this is what makes it so hard for us to admit when we're wrong. Because the story we believe about ourselves is, I'm sure I'm a good person. The third story is in verse 10. This is the story that says, I'm sure I did not do anything wrong. Verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned. Slightly different from the second one. Verse 8 was, we claim we have no sin. We're just a good person. Verse 10 is, we claim we have not sinned. This is not a claim to perfection. This is not saying, I've never done anything wrong. This is saying, in this particular instance, I didn't do anything wrong. Verse 8 is saying, I would never do something like that. While verse 10 is saying, well, nobody's perfect. But in this instance, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. So that gives us three stories we tell ourselves. These three stories, I'm sure I'm right. I'm sure I'm a good person. I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. These are the stories we tell ourselves, one or more of them. And whenever someone comes to us and says, I think maybe uh, you need to apologize, or I think maybe you are out of line, these are the things that kind of come up. Because we believe these stories very deeply. And they push back against anyone who would try to tell us otherwise, whether a spouse, a a child, or a parent, or a boss, a coworker. Or uh, someone who works on our team, or a friend, or a counselor, or a pastor. We push back and revert to one or more of these narratives. 
Now, these are the problems, John says. Now, pay attention, pay careful attention to the consequences of these stories. Because it reflects something about ourselves. In verse 6, if we, if we say, I'm, just, I'm sure I'm right, the consequence is we lie. Verse 8, if we say, I'm just a good person, the consequence is we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, if we say, I'm, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong. We make him, that is God, out to be a liar. See, friends, when we fall into the trap of believing these narratives about ourselves, I'm confident I'm right, I couldn't have been wrong, I'm a good person, I didn't do anything wrong, the Apostle John says we're actually, spiritually speaking, blind. We think we have a handle on ourselves and our actions. We think we really know who we are. But what God says actually is, you don't know yourself well enough. You're blind. And friends, sadly, this is one of the most common reasons that people reject Christianity. It might actually be the reason some of you reject Christianity. And if you're with us, can I just say, I'm so glad that you're with us. It's so rare in our day for us to put ourselves in a situation where we're going to hear a message that we're probably going to disagree with in some way. So if you're here, you're exploring, you're thinking, you're curious because of the service thing yesterday, and you're just kind of here, and you're like, this, this might actually be right where you are. That is, you've seen far too many Christians, when they do something wrong, go back to these well-worn stories. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, when we revert to these narratives... Well, my heart was in the right place. I didn't do anything wrong. When people outside churches like ours see our blindness and our self-delusion and say, uh, then, then they say, why would I want anything to do with that? Friends, who could blame them? They have actually drawn the same conclusion about us that God has. So this is not just kind of a spiritually topic. I mean, this is a real problem with real consequences. That's why the Apostle John brings this to our attention. He's saying you're deceiving yourself. You're believing a lie if you believe these three stories that we tell ourselves. We think, Christians often think, that our confidence in our rightness, our confidence that we are good... Our confidence that we haven't done anything wrong is a sign of how mature we are spiritually. It's a sign of our deep fellowship with God. And God says we're blind. How long have we been fooling ourselves? God only knows. Friends, all of this. Stories we tell ourselves, the self-delusion God is addressing in us, the negative impact that our self-confidence has had on the testimony of Jesus. All of this is intended by the Apostle John to get us back to the story that made us Christians in the first place. The story at the center of our faith is not, we're good people getting better. The story at the center of our faith isn't primarily about us at all. 
It's about another. It's the story about Jesus. Jesus who said he did not come to call the healthy, but he came for the sick. Jesus who said he did not come to call the righteous, but he came for those who knew they were not What's amazing is that in his dying hours, Jesus walked back every one of these stories we tell ourselves. Consider the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23. We're over here saying, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong, that third story. And in Luke 23, we find two thieves crucified with Jesus. One of the thieves said, save yourself and us too. But the other rebuked him and said, this man has done nothing wrong. You see, friends, we might claim, hey, I didn't do anything wrong in that situation. And it just exposes our blindness. But the thief on the cross looked at Jesus and said, truly, that's the one who's never done anything wrong. See, friends, Jesus is the only one who can take that third narrative and just put a red line right through it. That story is not ours to tell. You can go to the next slide, please. That story is not ours. Jesus is the only one who can tell himself that story, and it's actually true. Even a thief undergoing execution could see it. And his testimony to Jesus' innocence takes this story out of our mouths. We have done things that are wrong, but not Jesus. And it's not just the thief on the cross who saw it. It was also the chief judge at Jesus' criminal trial. Pilate, in verses 14 and 15 of Luke 23, Pilate says to those who want to see Jesus dead, you brought this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod. For he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Multiple times, Pilate said, why do you want to crucify him? That's a righteous man. Pilate and his friends were right. Pilate had serious problems, but he was right about this. Jesus is the only one who could tell this story to himself. I'm sure I'm a good person. Jesus is the only one who was. And by so doing, he takes that story out of our mouths. That's not a story we can tell ourselves. He's the only good person who ever lived. And by his perfect life of obedience to God, Jesus takes the story out of our mouths. He's the only one who could honestly tell himself he is truly good. When we tell ourselves this narrative, we are only exposing our blindness. But on the cross, Jesus didn't even have to claim it for himself. The chief judge at his trial testified to his goodness. And his testimony and the testimony of the thief, their testimony is true. And then, friends, Luke gives us one other little account. After Jesus died, there was a Roman centurion, an army officer, who saw all of this happening and in verse 48 said, surely this was a righteous man. You see, we tell ourselves a story, I'm sure I'm right, but we succeed only in fooling ourselves. But with Jesus, he didn't even have to claim it for himself. A Roman centurion testified to it for him. His life was so pure that even a Roman soldier could look on and say, now that's a righteous man. See, friends, in his life and in his death, Jesus walks back all all these narratives. 
When we want to claim, I'm sure I'm right, I'm sure I'm a good person, I'm sure I didn't do anything wrong, the gospel says, look at Jesus. In your delusion, look at Jesus. He is everything that you and I have failed to be. And yet he is the one who put himself in that exposed place, that vulnerable place, withstanding the attacks brought on by our own claims to self-righteousness, whether from the religious or the secular. And Jesus bore all of that in himself. He did it for us, the broken, the sick, those who knew they weren't righteous. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead to prove the truthfulness of everything he said, everything he said about us, and then to break the power of these stories over us. Friends, because of Jesus, we don't have to claim we're right anymore. We don't have to claim we're good anymore or that we always do the right thing. In fact, because of Jesus, we expect that we're not right or good or did the right thing. And that's where the other half of this passage, the oscillation, points us to. Instead of telling ourselves, I'm sure I'm right, verse 7 of 1 John 1 says, but if you walk in the light. The way I'd like to describe this to you is that we should adopt a posture of curiosity with respect to ourselves. I used to think walking in the light meant um, doing everything like just the way Jesus would, like being really holy and really good all the time. And I realized, wait a second, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work because verse 7 says that people who walk in the light have their sins purified, but if I'm walking without sin, I have no sin to be purified. So I'm like, well, and what is this talking about? Well, what it means is, like right now, I am standing in this theater in front of an amazingly bright light, Okay. <laughs> I can hardly see your faces. I know, I think there are still people in the room. Well, good. That's good. I'm glad there was a response. Someone pushed the laugh button. That's good. But you're looking at me and, and every blemish on my face is currently exposed to you. This is walking in the light, right? It is allowing the light of God to expose what is actually true about us. That's why I say walking in the light, the way I like to think of it is adopting a posture of curiosity. You can go to the next slide. It doesn't mean we always do what's right. Nor does it mean, and sometimes Christians go this way, some kind of weird introspection. Like, like I get the brightest light I can find and get a mirror and I just wallow in all the messed up things on my face. Like people do that spiritually. Oh, lament every single... It's not introspection. Rather, think of it as curiosity. Not a hard, rigid self-assessment, but a curiosity that when you're approached about something in your life, you go, now that's interesting. I'm not sure I saw that, but maybe you're right. Similar, and this is a different topic, but it's similar to when my wife said to me a number of years ago, I think you're depressed and you don't know it. And, and I said, well, I don't see it. It's <laughs> like, well, that's the point. <laughs> you don't see it. <laughs> but instead of responding with like, oh, you're just wrong, responding with curiosity. Like, huh, someone else is seeing something in my life. I wonder, I wonder what that is. 
Confession is not a dour act of penance where we can never like look up from the ground. No, not everything we do in life is wrong or sinful. So if, if you walk away from this sermon, like just confessing sin more, like that's, that's not the point. That's not what I'm going for. I just want to encourage you to live in reality. Live in reality rather than saying, I, I'm just beautiful. I'm just beautiful. And I don't want anything to expose me. Okay? Like just acknowledge what's there. Be curious about yourself. And when the Spirit does expose something, verse 9 says that we acknowledge it. We confess it. We acknowledge what the Spirit turns up. We don't have to make up sins to confess. This, I'm talking to a, a slice of this group here. Not all of you are wired this way. I am. Okay, So I want to talk to the slice that you want to make up things to confess. Okay? There's, there's plenty to deal with. You don't have to make up more. Okay? But when the Spirit turns something up, acknowledge that. Don't go hunting for problems. You don't have to. It's the Spirit's with you. So when he turns something up because you're walking in the light, then the second thing you do to find healing in confession is acknowledge what the spirit turns up. Say, that was wrong. If you're curious, you might find out you did something not because it was a sinful thing, but maybe it's because it's a cultural thing. I'm Korean. This is what Koreans do. Doesn't make it right or wrong. Or maybe if you're curious, you find out it was a family of origin thing. The reality is most of our actions are muddled. There's good and there's bad all mixed in. But there's also things mixed in like culture and background and formation and things like abuse and trauma too. And it's hard to figure some of these things out. That's why what I want to encourage you to do this day is just take this step before God and say, I'm willing for your light to look in. I don't want to live in delusion, God. And in that vulnerable space, he makes it a place of healing. And I love this last correction. The last correction is chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, if anybody does sin. Did you notice how the three corrections, the positives, are different than the three problems? The three problems are all stories we tell ourselves. If we claim, if we claim, if we claim. But the corrections have very little to do with what we say. The second one, a little bit, because it says if we confess. Uh, I'm on, uh, yeah, the next slide. It's just, it's freaking out. Oh, okay, no problem. The corrections are if we walk, oh, hey, there they are. Amazing. We manifested that. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, if we walk, if we confess, that's the closest one that has anything to do with what we say. But the last correction here is if anyone sins, that's actually not a positive action at all for us. Right? And yet look at what the verse says. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. You have someone to go to bat for you. You have the best defense attorney in all creation. The one who lived and died for you. Jesus Christ. So my third and final encouragement to you is enjoy your forgiveness. If you sin, you have an advocate. You don't have to confess longer 
or harder or more or really, really show God you mean it this time. If you sin, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So enjoy your forgiveness. Last night, in preparation for this sermon, I watched the series finale of Better Call Saul. It's great sermon prep. Will he ever come clean? Will we ever come clean? Our inclination, even after this sermon, this afternoon or tomorrow morning, might still be to say, I'm sure I'm right. I'm going to keep doing the same thing. I'm going to struggle with this. That's why I talk about it. But in those moments, friends, look to Jesus. Look to that exposed and vulnerable place from which He invites you to stop telling yourself the same old stories and instead to leave behind your spiritual blindness to step into a vulnerable place and to enjoy his healing touch in your life. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Jesus, for being more than enough for us, for walking back the false narratives that we tell ourselves. We pray that you would make us more and more into a genuinely humble people. Not mealy-mouthed, but self-forgetful. Present for others. Affirmed, dignified, restored, forgiven, aware, healed, and able to serve our co-workers and our families and our friends. So let your spirit do this work in us. For we ask in Jesus' name.